John 6. Last week, I asked you what the purpose of the feeding of the 5,000 was in the Gospels. We concluded that it was to show that even the greatest miracles recorded in the Bible could not convince people, the eyewitnesses, could not convince them to follow Jesus by faith, believing that he was the Messiah. They believed in him, that he had the ability to take care of them physically, but not spiritually. Today I want to ask you a similar question. Why did Jesus walk on the water in John 6? This is a record, this is also recorded in the other Gospels as well. It's fascinating. We've heard many sermons about it. And what's interesting about John's account of Jesus walking on the water is that he doesn't mention Peter in the story. But when you think of Jesus walking on the water, what ends up being the focal point of the story? Peter's willingness to come out and see Jesus, right? He steps out on the water. There's even songs written about stepping out on the water by faith to see Jesus. Of course, you'd have to grow up Southern Baptist to know that song. In John's Gospel, he has a reason. The story seems a bit random and out of place when you look at it in the narrative in John 6. It feels like he forgot about it and kind of went back into the letter and said, oh yeah, yeah, uh, I'm going to stick this somewhere. I'll stick it right here. This seems like a good spot. And then he says, oh, okay, Jesus walked on the water. Because it's really short, and compared to the other narratives, there's not a lot of surrounding it. <clears throat> now, if you were to say, if you were to answer the question, why did Jesus walk on the water, and your answer was to prove that he was the Messiah, you would be right. That would be the right answer. But why walk on the water to prove that? Why specifically do it that way? Now, last week we took a, really a 30,000-foot view of John's 71 verses in chapter 6. And we really saw the lay of the land where John is going to take us on this journey, which was a great journey. I really enjoyed teaching last week. It is one of the wildest rides in the Gospels, if you ask me, so far in what we've seen. And we've seen some pretty crazy stuff in John. There's a flow to John's thought as he's retelling the stories that he experienced. But if you're familiar with how John writes and the perspective of, of uh, he is coming from, the story can feel a bit choppy and disconnected at times. For the next few weeks, we're going to, to spend some time with John in this story. Uh, it's kind of really hard to cover 71 verses quickly. And he has much to give us, and it's magnificent. It really is a great chapter. But when you read John... A lot of his stories just kind of feel like they're not really connected to each other if you don't understand what's going on underneath John's narrative. A while back, I took my kids to go see the Lego movie called Ninjago. Anybody seen that? All the parents, that's right. Uh, That's a pretty entertaining movie. I, for the most part, enjoyed it. Uh, A lot of boy humor, for the most part. But there was this sense throughout the movie that I was missing the punchline. And I'm a pretty observant guy, and I like cartoons, so for the most part, I, I, can get a, I can get a good cartoon. My oldest two that I took to see it, and many throughout the theater, they, they were kept laughing at points in the movie, and I didn't get it. I'm like, why is that funny? It, it's, why is this entertaining? And I didn't grasp what it is that would make that line or that act funny. There was also there was a, there was a, an assumption by the producers of the movie that you had seen the TV series is what I began to realize, which 
I had not seen the TV series. Don't judge me. Once we got him back in the car, I asked the kids, I'm like, well, okay, what it is that I'm missing here? Why, why, why was this funny? Why was this, this, and this? And what I, began, what I learned was the main character, Lloyd, his name is Lloyd, but the, uh, the villain can't call him that. They call him Lloyd. The main character, the main villain, Garmadon, was his dad. I was like, oh, that would have been helpful to know going into the movie. It makes a lot of sense now. I get it. Okay, okay, okay. And then I saw some of the humor. So now I wanted to go back and see the movie because I was like, oh, okay, now I, now I see the connection. When most Christians read their Bibles, they feel lost at times. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I think I'm supposed to be excited about this or this is supposed to be really good, but I'm not quite sure why. Like, why is this supposed to be good? They enjoy what they see, it's true. I mean, most Christians, if you are a follower of Christ, you enjoy what you see, but there's always this feeling that I'm missing something. Well, there is something missing when it comes to the modern perspective. You don't understand who the main characters are and what it, what it is that their relationship is to the story. In modern Christianity, the main character in the Bible is the individual reading the Bible. So we open up the book, we open it up to ask ourselves what it is in this book that can help me be a better Christian, and I can find the blessings and tap into the blessings in the storehouses of God. So I become the main character. So for most, the Bible almost feels like a treasure map of sorts. You're trying to find your way through this life. But the key to understanding the Bible, as we have seen in John, is to understand that the main character is Jesus. Jesus is the main character of the Bible. He's God's son. And the story's about how God saves sinful humanity by the death of his only son. That's the key behind the Bible. That's the point of it. So if you understand what's going on, then when you read things like John 6, which we're going to read today, the Bible will begin to fall together and make more sense for you. So where do we come into the story of God and in his Bible? What's fascinating is that you do end up in the story, but it's not till the way end. Like when the book is finished, there's this section about you. And the part where at the end of the story, the writer, who is God, calls the reader to believe in his story, where you come into place, he says, I want you to believe that my story is true. He calls you to faith. That's where Jesus shows up on the scene, who is the author. He says, I've come, as we'll see today, that you may believe. But up until that point, the story is not about you. Now, if you can see this perspective of the Bible, which Jesus is the point, John 6 will be a pivotal part of the redemption story. It is for me. The part where you start to hit the person next to you and say, pay attention. Don't want to miss this. You ever been in a movie and someone's doing that to you, like you've just dozed off? Hey, wake up. You're not going to want to miss this part. If you miss it, you're going to miss the whole movie. I really don't watch that many movies, for those of you that are judging me. All right, so please turn with me. There's, so this is me this morning. I'm hitting you in the leg going, don't miss this. You, you don't want to miss this in your story, in the relationship to, to God and the Bible. Don't, don't miss this. This is good stuff. It'll help you in believing in Jesus. So let's look at John 6. Now the last note we read from John before entering into this chapter was in chapter 5. And Jesus is pointing them back to the Old Testament. And in verse 46, he says, If you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. So that's the, in the mind of the reader. So just to go back to last week, remember, John's writing 
to Christian believers, so Christians, it's really great English there, Christian believers, either a Christian and a believer, it's not the same thing. So he's writing to a group of people who know who Christ is, but they don't know all the information about Christ yet. So he's going to point them to how all of this Old Testament information that they have, which they do know the law very well, is connected into this new person they're believing in called Jesus. So he says, if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Now John doesn't work like the other writers do. They kind of work in this chronological order, like a normal story would. Kind of, here's what happened next, and here's what happened next, and here's what happened next. Well, the... What happened in John 5, what happened in John 6 is this massive gap, and we don't even know how far apart it is, but it's a big gap. But he says, so what happened next is, because he is trying to get you to see not necessarily the narrative as as it unfolds with Jesus, but he's wanting you to see the points or parts of Jesus that are important. So he doesn't follow a a timeline. He kind of picks and chooses points of Jesus' narrative. Even in John 20, he goes, you know, I could have picked out some other miracles to record because he did a lot more than what's in here but what i did pick is sufficient and if you think about it jesus did live for three years so that's a lot of information to try and write down because apparently he did a lot so to make the connection between moses and jesus what john does is give us john six so he ends with moses wrote of me if you would have believed moses you would have believed in me and what's the very next thing he writes i've got a story to tell you about feeding of the 5,000. So do you want to know a little insight to the story that will help you follow along so you don't miss the point and enjoy what is being written? John is pointing us back to the Old Testament once again, specifically how Jesus is going to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament in Moses. So that's the key. Right? That's Garmadon for you. All right? Moses. But Moses isn't the villain, just to be clear. All right. We just read uh, John 5.46. Now let's pay attention as we read John 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. I'm going to stop real quick. John, uh, the one thing I, I said I want you to pay attention, sorry I didn't tell you what, too. John doesn't just say things because he feels like saying them. So a context again. John, writing about a real human being, two real human beings about what really happened so they would really believe in that human being named Jesus, say that he is the Son of God. So John gives all of these facts and locations. These readers would know where this sea is, where that location is. So in their mind, they're realizing John isn't making this up. It is all related to historical fact. Okay. So as you read that, you're going to pay attention how John points out all these things like there was grass at that time. There's a, there's a reason why he writes that. After this, Jesus went into the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which, the sea, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large cloud, c- crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now take note that John does, doesn't say miracles. He uses the word signs several times in his gospel. And why would this be important to the reader? Because signs point you to something. Signs point... So he's saying Jesus is doing miracles or signs to point them to something, which is himself. And what is he pointing to? As we'll see, that he is the prophet, priest, and king. Verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. 
This is a huge neon light John plants right in the story. So he sets up the historical part. This is real. This is a fact. And then he adds to it and says, oh, just so you understand the setting, the feeling, what's going on in the mind, not only of the person in front of Jesus, but what's also going on in the mind of the reader. Passover was a time when Jewish people recalled what? The deliverance from Egypt through who? Moses. Remember what I said? Who was the key? Moses. And we're looking for the prophet like him to come. So this is what's going on in the Passover. They're recalling this glorious deliverance that they've experienced. So they expected the prophet to bring deliverance and provide manna, as it says in the Old Testament, from heaven as Moses had done. And it was a time really of naturalistic fervor was high. So when the Passover was about to come around, which came around once a year in the spring, everybody was kind of feeling, yeah, this connection that we have with God and, and, and this, this remembrance that God's going to bring deliverance. And it's just hard for us to really understand the celebration of the Passover. As a nation, we don't, you know, we're not, is, we're not Israel, we're not in the Old Testament, so we don't celebrate it. We have things that we celebrate, things like 4th of July. And, you know, we all put on our... Uh, flag hats and flag shirts and shoot off 4th of July or fireworks. I would say in more modern history, specifically I would say for me, so I'm speaking for myself at the moment, but when the date of 9-11 comes around, there is a sense of patriotism in me just because it's so connected to my history and my uh, life growing up here in the United States. And for those of you that experienced that, you probably all remember where you were at if you were alive at that moment, uh, where you were at and what it is that you were doing and and um, I can remember I, I was uh, getting ready for school, for college, and I had a guy bang on the door, and I thought he was playing with me because he was a jokester. And I didn't really believe him until 10 minutes later I got out of my room and it was on TV, and I was like, wow, he's telling the truth. So we can all feel like there's that sense. Every time that rolls around, we feel that. That's what John's doing. He's setting the tone. He wants you to feel what it is that the Israelites would have observed as Jesus is doing this miracle. So Jesus start, John starts the story reminding the reader what time of the year it is, which is Passover, that time when the Jews would be thinking about the Exodus and Moses as their leader. So look at verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, some commentators think that he's asking Philip because Philip is actually from this area, so he would actually know where it's at. I mean, it's possible. But uh, we're about to see, so here's where it gets fun. We're about to see all these connections now where John is picking up on what Jesus is doing and making this connection. So this phrase, where is it that we can buy bread to see these people may eat, is very reminiscent of uh, Numbers eleven thirteen, where Moses asks God a similar question. Unlike Moses, whose question originated in confusion and inadequacy, he didn't have the ability to produce bread. But Jesus says himself in verse 6, knew what he would do. So Jesus knew very well what the miracle was going to be. And look at verse 6. He said this to test him, Philip, for he himself knew what it, he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii, or if you were to understand this, uh, it would be eight months' wages, so it's a lot of money, worth of bread would not be enough 
for each of them to get even a little bite, just a little bit. John gives these, again, details, right? Facts. This is what's really happening. And that John gives these details that don't seem that important when you're reading them, just like maybe on your daily reading schedule, when you kind of glance by them. But, but John is writing so that we would believe in Jesus and that Jesus is real, so we keep that in our mind. So there's two little details I want you to pay attention to here. The amount of people who need to be fed and the phrase would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now we learn, we're going to learn here eventually, that this mass crowd is numbered anywhere up to about 20,000 people. So John's setting it up. They're not going to eat a little bit. And it's clear they don't have enough money to provide the bread that's needed. They are out. Remember he just walked out into this mountain or hill top would be more sufficient to understand. So they're not in town where you can simply just go and get food. Look at verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Now, barley loaves were really for poor people's food. They preferred wheat bread, but barley is what most people would have, could afford. And it's interesting that John would mention this as part of his story. Again, details are to see that there was, this was a true story. But specifically, if the setting is Passover, where he's pointing us back to the mind that Jesus is the greater Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, this whole incident is really, again, reminiscent of 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 42-44, which recounts how 12 loaves of barley bread were brought to Elisha, the prophet, but were regarded by his servants as completely inadequate to feed the hundred men. It's like, this is not enough. And what does he say to them? This is what it says in Second Kings. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Now, some of you that already know the story have already made the connection. In John's story, he wants you to feel that it is ludicrous to think that this little boy's meal could let alone feed the 12 disciples but over 20,000 people so look at verse 10 jesus said have the people sit down now there was much grass in the place which follows the passover being in spring because there would be grass so john is still demonstrating the reality of his story this is accurate so the men sat down about 5,000 in number now i mentioned last week that this is how the New Testament would count large groups of people by heads of households. So you'll notice the, John says the people, and then he says he had the men. That's how they counted them, sit down. Matthew even explains this to you. You don't have to turn them. I'll read it to you. Matthew 14.21 says, uh, the number of those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So the, Matthew kind of gives you the interpretation there. This is a large people. I mean, we're guessing around 15,000, 20,000 people. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as many, as much, sorry, as they wanted. Now before uh, we talk about this verse, I'm going to take a little side note that has nothing to do with my sermon. But I thought it would be appropriate to point out, since we are actually covering this text. In the context, Jesus is... Um, 
Jesus performs what we would say a traditional Jewish prayer, maybe. I mean, he doesn't tell us what he says. But there is this traditional Jewish prayer as it relates to um, food. And this idea of praying for food or blessing food is not demanded or not commanded in Scripture. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been out to eat with somebody and the conversation gets going and the food shows up and you start eating and all of a sudden you're, you're getting this look of like, how dare you shovel food into your mouth without taking that mouth and thanking God for what you received. And I've actually been with somebody where they just stopped conversation, bowed their head and prayed privately. And I was like, you're going to leave me out? What's with that? You can't leave me out. <laughs> um, it is, uh, the, the King James for years gave us a little bit of confusion here because it does talk about where he blessed it. And, and the idea of it is really, from the Greek, is he gave thanks. He was giving thanks for what was about to take place, which is the blessing of the people through the power of the Spirit. And in this particular section, when it's dealing with prayer, um, if you're using this for why you must and have to pray for your food, uh, I would encourage you that praying or blessing your food does not change the molecular structure of the food. If you're eating sugar and carbs, it goes down to sugar and carbs, okay? (laughs) Cheetos don't turn into carrots. All right, back to John 11. Sorry, just a little side note there. But I still like to pray for my food, so it's okay. I'm not, I'm not dogging it. All right, read, uh, let's read verse 11 again. It says, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Very important phrase. Play on words. What did Philip say? Not enough for them to have what? A little. And what does John record? They had as much as they could eat. There was no limit to what they wanted. But also take note how John further writes in this, in this story, like verse 12. When they had eaten their fill, again, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now remember what it said in Second Kings, that there was plenty for all of the men who Jesus, as we'll learn throughout prophecy, is the greater Elisha. That there, was, there is one coming who is greater than Moses and greater than Elisha, which this story in its narrative and in its language is pointing us back to this uh, smaller story, 12 loaves, 100 men, 5 loaves, 20,000 people. Jesus is the greater Elisha, is what John's saying. So they didn't go into the crowd and come back with nothing. That, that's what, that, the whole reason why John puts that in there is like, okay, go see if there's anything left over. Now, if there was nothing left over, you would think, well, maybe the people had their fill. Well, what did it say? They come back with what? Twelve baskets. Now, why did they come back with twelve baskets? Some people think it's the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, he sent twelve men out, so I'm assuming... They're going to bring 12 baskets back. I think it's as simple as that, right? But they were full. They came back and said, okay, yeah, it's very clear. We let everybody eat. And when they were done eating, it says, okay, if you're not, and this, you know, this is part of the Old Testament that you're not supposed to wait or uh, store up food and it turns into worms. We're not going to get into that. But the point of it was, John is saying, the factual story is these people ate everything that they wanted and then there was some left to hand back. It is accurate. It happens. The people just witnessed this sign, miracle. They saw it. 
The people who ate saw it. The apostles saw it. They're looking at the 12 baskets. It is incredible. One little boy, 12 baskets. Now you notice in this sermon, how much did the little boy come into play? He's only in the story because it's in the same story with Elisha in 2 Kings. Because there's this little boy who had 12 breads. It has nothing to do with your willingness to give your resources to God. I made that point last week. 14. When the people saw this, that he had done this, what he had done, they said, this indeed, this indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And who is the prophet that John was be speaking of? Remember John 5.46? For Moses wrote of what? Me. Remember how John started the story, the time of Passover, right? The story every Jew knew and celebrated every Passover. So he gets the, the reader, he gets uh, the, the reader making sure they're in the right context. Every Jew, present, uh, every Jew presented with this meal, sitting there and experiencing this miracle, would have known this section of Scripture. And we know that they know this section of Scripture because when the sign is finished, they make the connection, and at that moment they want to make Jesus king. For instance, Deuteronomy 18, 5, uh, 15 says, the Lord, will, the, Lord, sorry. the Lord your God will raise you up for you, a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So there's this whole dialogue about the coming prophet, this new prophet that's coming. And as we learn throughout the prophecy that he, prov- he will become that one that is the provider, these great provisions... So John sets it up. Exodus, have the people sit down, makes the connection to 2 Kings, the miracle is done, and what do the people go? Yep, he's the one. He's the one. So John, for his readers, is basically giving a clear line of sight to the glory of the Son. It's very obvious. Jesus is the coming prophet. John is like a little kid hopping up and down saying, Did you see it? Did you see it? Of course they didn't, because that's what the rest of the book is about. That's what the book of the rest of the, sorry, the, rest of the chapter is about. But John is saying, he's, he's the one Moses said would come. He's the one. Now there's two parts to this story, as we learned last week, there's the, as we learned at it, looked at it from a 30,000 foot view. The first, as we've just seen, that Jesus is the Messiah we can trust. Right? All of the details are there. It's just accurate. All these people really did eat. Jesus really did perform this miracle. So there's that part of the story. The human son of God who proved he was God. The second part of the story is teaching the reader an important lesson we will spend more time with next week. Humanity is not capable, even after seeing the power of God face to face, Humanity is not capable of placing their faith in Jesus Christ on their own. That's the second part of the story. So there's two parts. For us and for those who are out of, not in Christ. John is basically going to tell us it's a gift that must come from the Father. So John begins to tip us his hat in this direction in the story. Look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king Jesus withdrew and again to the mountain by himself now because we are so ignorant 
of the Old Testament. We have no context of why John would place this little bit of information in the story, but it is huge to the context, not only to the story, but to all of John. Israel at this very moment is living in the promised land. They're there. And every Passover, they hear about the promise of the, pro- the, 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 the promise given to their forefathers about the promised land. But they are not reaping the benefits because they are under the Roman rule. So they live in their own land, and yet they have no freedom. They are still in suppression. And every year they celebrate the great rescue of their God from Egypt, but yet find themselves once again underneath another tyrant. So 20,000 people out in a field just see this man fulfill the promise that was promised like 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, and it clicks in their mind. They know the promises of God to bring a king that will deliver them from their bondage. Ah, this is why they say, he's the man. He's the king. He's the one coming. And John makes sure we see that these people are not ignorant of their history. It's very clear. They know who this man is and they know the connection is supposed to be in the Old Testament. So they saw Jesus as the one would bring deliverance. Here's the key. What does John say? By force. By force. Because this is not what Jesus wanted, nor was it his point in feeding of the 5,000. He ran away to prevent them from making this mistake, of making him king so that he can take over the rule of the land and move out the Romans. And later John explains what G, uh, what it, why is it that Jesus was coming as... Um, sorry, I get really excited about something and then I can't talk, so maybe I'll just take a break. <laughs> John is going to explain later on how Jesus is coming to fulfill this prophecy of as a king. So if you do have your Bibles real quick, turn to John 18. So in your mind, remember, Jesus is king. Israel at this moment is thinking physical, literal, right now. Physical, literal. We want to force him to do it. Because it's not beneficial for Jesus. It's definitely beneficial for them. Multiple times the language of kingdom shows up in John, but I thought this one was most helpful. Verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So finally, at the very end of his ministry, multiple times throughout Jesus' ministry, he says, look, my kingdom is not of this world. Israel made the connection they were supposed to make, but they missed what Jesus was saying. 
the kingdom that they wanted to establish was that of violence. Jesus said, I didn't come with a sword. I didn't come with a spear. Now, what did Jesus end up taking? He ended up taking the spear. He ended up taking the very punishment. That is what he's saying. Look, I have come to fulfill a promise. Yes, I am the king. And I will prove that I am the king when I raise from the grave. When I rise from the grave. But not of this world. Amazing. I love that part of John. I can't wait to get there. I got to time it like right around the time of Easter, right? Not this Easter though, sorry. So, in back to John 6, John is helping us as the reader to see Jesus absolutely has the right to claim he can bring deliverance to sinners because he is God. Now, the kingdom that the Israelites wanted in the narrative was a kingdom now, and he's saying, you're not listening I am not freeing you from this tyranny. I am freeing you from the tyranny of sin. And I have the right and the ability to do that. This is why in John 20 he says, I write these so that you might believe, and then believing you may have eternal life. Those who trust in him have eternal life. And we're going to save the rest of this dialogue for next week. Now remember that I asked you at the beginning of the sermon, why did Jesus walk on water? Right? Well, all this was a setup for the whole story about Jesus walking on water. <laughs> what did I say was the key to this passage? Garmadon, right? No, Moses. Moses. Now read with me John 6, 16. Moses, Passover, Old Testament. Have that in your brain. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid or fear not. They were glad to take him into the boat, and this part of the narrative is always interesting and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going but just if hollywood wouldn't mess this up it would be kind of fun to watch they pull jesus into the boat like you know they all flop on the boat and then they all stand up and like we're beached how did that happen you know that's not just a fun story for the sake of putting in there john's like oh yeah 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 that's a really cool thing that jesus did he walked on water i'm gonna put that in there no he has a purpose for it in the Exodus story, what does God do when it relates to water? He saves Israel by having them walk across dry land in the midst of the sea, right? John keeps using little words that the reader would be familiar with. If they know the law and they've memorized the law and they, keep, they hear the, the priest read them the law every week in the synagogue... So far we've heard the words like Passover, barley loaves, and the feeding of the 5,000. The people recognizing Jesus as the prophet from Deuteronomy. So all of this is still flowing connected in John 6. In this story, the disciples find themselves in the midst of a storm, or in trouble, in peril. Jesus walks up, and it frightens them. And notice what it is that John records Jesus saying. 
Do not be afraid or fear not. You can translate it either way. Exodus 14, 13. Israel's backed up against the water. Peril is coming. And this is what Moses says to the people. Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. John also might be pointing us back to a well-known psalm. Psalm 107.29 He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and He brought them to their desired haven. Hmm. What happened when Jesus gets into the boat? Let the Lord, let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love for His wondrous works to the children of men. What is John proving to the reader? Jesus is God. Jesus walks on the water. Jesus transforms them to their location. He keeps pointing out this human being is in fact God. Why did John put this story? Jesus walking on the water in this exact place? For the reader, it's another reminder you can trust Jesus. He, in fact, is actually John, or, uh, actually God. So, we've been so disconnected from Jesus as a human being. I have sympathy for those who were in the presence of Jesus and struggled to believe in Him. Because He, in fact, looked like a man. And we learn that even from Isaiah... That he was, there's was nothing to, that would be pleasing to look upon him. In other words, you wouldn't look at him. He's like, wow, look at him. He's walking like two inches off the ground. And he looks like He-Man. He looks awesome. That must be Jesus. Now, what is it that Jesus had to do to prove that he was God? It wasn't his looks. It's what he did, right? His words were confirmed in his actions. So there's a side of it where... There's some sympathy towards these people who look at a real human being flesh that didn't have this glow about him as he walked about. And there's this struggle, you can feel it. And this struggle is what John records in the rest of his book. So John is telling us this, as one commentator wrote. This is the conclusion. Jesus is creating a new Israel, leading them on a new exodus through the wilderness at the end of the exile. That's what's going on. Jesus is showing up and saying, I am here to exile you. I am the new Moses. But I'm not exiling you in this world. I'm exiling you out of the world. I'm taking you out. I'm not keeping you in it. If Jesus is announcing the end of the exile in his ministry, then his disciples ought to have anticipated the coming of the new covenant, as well as the coming of the Holy Spirit as a sign of the dawning of the new age. This is what Jesus gets into in the rest of the book. I am the bread of life. And then he starts to talk about regeneration and how it is that only those who the Spirit regenerates can come to life. So these random stories that really, for years in, in my experience, that I read, they're, yeah, really cool, Jesus feeds a lot of people, I'm hungry, can you feed me now? And Jesus walking on water, it's like, yeah, yeah, I know, I should be more like Peter, but I'm not. It's not what that is about. You were to read that and go, okay, this man, this human being, this fleshly guy who claimed to be Jesus, and he says, if I believe in him, will save me from my sins, he's really the guy. 
He really is. There's all these people that saw Jesus feed these people, and then there was all these people who saw him die, and then there's all these people who saw him raise, rise from the grave. He really is it. So when we read the Bible, the point of it is that to read and have your affections drawn to the capacity of Jesus. He is absolutely capable of fulfilling every promise given in the Old Testament and the New. And what is left for the reader? Well, this is why the doctrine of faith alone is so important. If you remove the doctrine of faith alone, that is, you are right with God, you are redeemed, you are a part of the new kingdom, you get to be one of his children by faith alone, you remove that, well, now the Bible is completely changed for you. Because if it is faith alone and your performance, now the Bible is, what must I do to perform to get God's salvation? And now instead of you reading and enjoying the wondrous works of Jesus and all of the beautiful connections of the fulfillment of this complex story that yet breeds so much hope and faith, it now turns into, really, the Bible becomes a weight on you. And your Bible probably builds with dust because it's too heavy. It's too much for me to do. It's too much for me to do. Whereas, hey, do you want to know one more time in a new way how it is that Jesus took care of everything for you? I do, and that's why I'm here. And this is, let's go ahead and get ready for communion. And this is why we do communion. People ask me, why do you guys do communion every week? Because... It's a good reminder of what it took Jesus to do to make you right with God. And we need that reminder every week. Because our natural desires are to make ourselves justified before God. This week I was sitting in my office and my son runs in, my little two-year-old. I don't remember what he was trying to show me, but he was really proud of something. And he really wanted me to see it. And as soon as I, and I, I had my headphones in so I couldn't see him. So he was trying to get my attention and finally he got my attention and he was hitting me and then he shows me and I was like, oh, great. So there's this desire, we want the approval of God. Like we want God to look at us and go, good job, John. Good job. And he does. If you're in Christ. 100% of the time you're accepted. But there's this side of us that's just not enough. We want to prove that we're good enough. And this is a story that says no man has ever been good enough except for Jesus Christ. And it took thousands of years to prove it to humanity and we still don't get it. So every week we get the opportunity of opening it up, diving deep into the word and saying one more time, Jesus, he's enough. We don't need our works to save ourselves. We have Jesus. Lord, I thank you that I didn't figure this out on my own. I'm not standing up here because I'm some wise scholar. It is by the power of the Spirit that I stand here and say, Jesus is my Savior. It is try trust in Him alone. And it only makes sense to me because of what you've graciously given me, this gift of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.